Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.deville.church. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27, verse 38. And so you will need your Bibles this morning because we'll be going through a few verses here. And um, I'll obviously be reading them. But yeah, so Matthew 27, verse 38. The title of the message this morning is Three Crosses and the Gospel. Three Crosses and the Gospel. Amen. And everybody has it? Say amen. One person's got it. <laughs> Anybody else have it? Okay. Matthew 27, 38. Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Luke chapter 23, verse 39 and 42. So we have also in Matthew the capture of the thieves, as it's known, the thief on the cross that was saved that day. But Luke also captures part of that conversation and, and also another perspective. And I want to start with verse 39 to 42. So if you can go to Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 42. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Three crosses and the gospel. So what is the very first thing that we notice or we recognize or we see in the scriptures is we see that there are three crosses. There was one thief that was on the left of Jesus and there was one thief that was on the right of Jesus. Now, when we look at this word that the first thief said, uh, did, it says that he railed at Jesus. Now, when it comes to railing at Jesus, it's talking about someone that goes ahead and blasphemes. Uh, they put him down. And they speak evil of them right in front of their face. Um, if you notice that in uh, the last part of Matthew in 44, it says that both who were crucified with him reviled him, same word, in the same way. 
Now, when it comes to looking at both of these uh, thieves, not just the one, but both of them were guilty. What happened in order for them to warrant this, this crucifixion? Who did the Romans crucify in that time? In that time, the Romans always crucified those that they wanted to make a public display out of for doing something that was not just a misdemeanor. When, we're, when, we're, when this story is talked about, it's about the thief on the cross, and it would be very harsh to crucify somebody for just stealing something. But the scripture says is that they were robbers. For us to get an idea of what rob, type of robbers they are, the same, type, the same word is used in Luke chapter 10, verse 30. And I'll read it for you. It says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So these two men have done some type of violent crime. It wasn't just for thievery. Because also in that time, the Romans had a system or a process to where they would put those that were convicted of certain crimes to pay back to society, whether building bridges or roads or some kind of a civil work. They'd put them to work right away. But the crucifixion was saved for those that they wanted, again, to make a public display about something they had done really bad. So these guys, first of all, are guilty, both of them. Guilty for crimes that were violent. Guilty for, for uh, they had went to a court system and they were also declared guilty. It wasn't like they just picked them out of the crowd. Again, the first robber who rails on him in Luke 23 verse 39 says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Again, this word re railed means to blaspheme God but it's not blaspheming him like being away or, or you, you know you got mad or you're having a bad day but this is right here in front of him he's he's telling him to his face he's speaking evil of him he's mocking him here we have a man that lived the life where it came to a point where his sins overtook him we have a man here where his sins literally nailed him to a cross. We know that he is showing no remorse for his sins. To the point that he would actually verbally abuse a perfect man named Jesus. He, he would abuse the Savior. Now my question is, how does someone get to this point? How does someone get to this point of where they're at their deathbed, they're nailed to a cross, and they're, they're speaking evil of the one true and perfect God? They're speaking evil of the gospel right there before them. If we could turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, I think this helps us to see the picture of what happens with man apart from Christ. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
God's wrath is his just anger against something that is wrong, something that's not okay. Why is it just? Because it would be unjust not to be mad, not to be angry at what's wrong. So it's his just anger. It's his wrath against unrighteousness. And he says it's, it's how does it happen? Is when man suppresses and pushes down the truth. Verse 19 says, what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invincible attributes, that is eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. So we have here in Romans describing mankind when they see and know that there is a God and they see and they know there is truth and they begin to suppress it. And the outcome of that suppressing is exchanging God for an image of God through something they see, something that can be created, or an image they make up in their life. In our culture today, there are so many images that are out there that are made for us to worship. All kinds of images. These images sometimes are images of people that are popular or successful. These images are maybe of people that accomplish things or even do good. Maybe they acquire things. These images are maybe of pleasure or of comfort. These are images of maybe a lifestyle or, or a dream that our families wanted us to live. These images are sometimes debased, right? They're, they're horrible, they're sinful, they're wrong, and yet they're still glorified and they're still worshipped and they're still made to be something that is good. And that's why it says, because uh, instead they're thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened there was no sense there there was no sense of is this good there's no sense is this helpful is this even encouraging is it healthy claiming to be wise they became fools in other words saying this is the right way became foolish even in that and they exchanged the glory of an immortal god our heavenly God, for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. And then it says, therefore, in verse 24. And anytime it says, therefore, you have to look back on why it says, therefore. It's saying that the wrath of God, therefore, and I want you to catch this. For this reason, it says, therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts. And it goes on to explain sexual morality and worshiping the created rather than the creature, the creator. Verse 26, and says, for this reason God delivered them over again. So the wrath of God was delivering them over again to exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And then verse 28 says, and because 
they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them again over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. This is what we call a theological term, total depravity. But before we get to this point of total depravity I, 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 and talk, well, talk about that just a little bit, that, you know, there's really nothing in us from the time we're born that actually desires and wants God. You know, we have this idea in our culture that people are basically good and that if you give them the, enough, the right environment, uh, you know, the right chances, the, the right information, or somehow, some way, uh, within themselves, they're going to choose something that is good. They're going to choose what's right. But it's wrong. that's wrong every single time. See, there are times that we can see people sinning over and over again. And it seems like they get away with it. It seems like their life is fine. Because we also live in a culture that we think that whenever something, someone does something wrong, that boom, God zaps them, and they're in trouble. And their life's falling apart, right? Karma, right? But because nothing has zapped them, and because everything is fine, and they have a long life of things that are going well, and they're deep in their sin, and they have no conscience and no regard for God, they have this idea of saying, I can do whatever I want, right? You can't judge me. Only God can judge me. Don't believe it for a minute. Because this can actually be the wrath of God. Allowing them and giving them over to those desires that just keep them farther and farther and farther from Christ. I don't say this as look at them. I say this as look at me. Matter of fact, it breaks my heart for anyone that does not know Christ and has not come into that knowledge of the truth. Because this is me without Christ. See, the thief was so close to the actual gospel, the love of God in human form, displayed before his very eyes, yet he still rejects Christ. Psalms 10 verse 4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. There is no God. Psalms 58.3 say, The wicked are estranged from the womb. That means from the time they are born, from the time they're conceived. They're estranged. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Psalms 58, verse 3. This first cross that we look at, we look at a cross where someone has lived a life where it took them to a place where they're nailed to their sin. 
And the craziest thing about this cross is that they're next to the Savior that could save them from their sin. But yet, even in that moment, seeing a perfect man, the God of this universe, the one that loves them, the one that's dying for them, the one that's actually been, the sins that they committed and the reason why they're on the cross is actually going to be poured on them right there, right then and there. And not just that, but all of God's wrath that was stored up for them because God must have this wrath and must pour it out, pours it out on the one next to him and they still he still rejects Christ. We still reject Christ. All of us still reject Christ. The second robber, the second cross, is just as guilty. Let's look at that for a moment. And he's just as blind as the first one. How do we know? Matthew 27, 44 says, And the robbers, plural, were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. The other robber that was on his other side did the same thing to him. This is not a story about, you know, someone was, the, the robber on the left was good and the robber on the right was bad. This is not a story about that. Both of them were bad. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Who is the God of this world? That's Satan. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The image of God that day was shining. The image of God that day was before them. But they are blinded But something happens right here in verse 40. Luke 23, verse 40. Something happens before our eyes. We get to see the second robber come to Christ. Not because he is good, but because God is good and God is merciful. Luke 23, 40 to 42 says, But the other criminal protested, Do not, Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. That day, that second robber, the grace of God, the gospel, the light shined, and he was able to see it. A minute ago, he could not see it because he also blasphemed God. Could you imagine that? Within just minutes. Because he's nailed. He cannot move. He cannot walk. He cannot prove that he's understanding it or, or that he can do something about it. Isaiah 35, 5 says, And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. When the gospel takes its place, what do we see? What do we see when the gospel takes its place? The robber recognizes his wrong. See, when we sin as Christians, we recognize that it is wrong. We usually feel bad. It's uncomfortable. It's hard when we feel bad about what we did. That is not easy. We sometimes don't want to feel bad for our sin, but that's a good thing that we do. Again, I know in our culture, it's all about not feeling uncomfortable. It's not feeling, about not feeling discomfort, but that actually is the evidence that we are saved, is that we have that discomfort.
See, the first cross with the robber who did not recognize his sin, I can get that all day long. I can get that. I can get that he was nailed to a cross. I can get that he died that day. But the second cross, with the robber who is now saved and will be with Jesus, is just where I fall to pieces. Like, here I am, nailed to my cross because of the bad things I did, and I'm being forgiven. That's the hardest part to accept about this. See, because it strips me. In any way, from any way, that I could show God that I changed that I'm sorry and that I appreciate what he did. See, this man was never going to live another day. Neither one would ever live another day of their life. Think about that just for a second. They would never live another day. And in them not being able to live another day, whether it's this man that rejected Christ or this man that actually received Christ that day, there is nothing they can do about their situation. And I don't know about you, but I struggle with this right here. Because, see, there's something I want to do about my salvation. There's something I want to do about the gospel. There's something I want to do about him dying on the cross for me. I want to have a chance to say thank you. I want to have a chance to live a life that's different. I want to have a chance to sort of like pay back to God for what he did for me. It is so hard to accept the gospel. It's much easier to accept that there's something we got to do for it. There's some way, there, it's easier to accept that our life is going to change and, we're, and it's going to be different and we're going to actually hate sin and we're going to try to live for Jesus. It's easier to do that. But to be nailed to a cross and to wake up before God and to never have lived that life that is a gospel that my mind and my soul and my heart cannot understand. And this is where Ephesians 2 verse 8 comes alive. Ephesians 2 8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. Two sermons ago, I was worshiping up here, listening to the sermon that Jay was preaching, and that's where I received what I'm speaking about today, about this thief that Jesus saved. I, I just, I haven't been able to move past it. And it still blows my mind. Three crosses in the gospel. How could we put this into practice? When it comes to, be, when it comes to being a parent, And how we view 
our children. There's so much to that. I mean, there's, you could do a whole sermon on that, but just knowing that even if a thief is nailed to the cross, God could still save him in that second. Even if our children's our worst nightmare for them to do the worst things in this world and put themselves in a place that maybe they were not able to be free from, God still has the last say so. Yes, we must tell them, we must discipline them in a way that says, it's, we got to talk about this, we got to deal with this. But with mercy and with grace, because that's what God does with us. Yes, there still needs to be a consequence. God did not forego the consequence of these men's sin. They still were nailed and they still died. God took the consequence upon himself. So there still has to be a consequence. Because if not, you're teaching your kids that it's okay to do wrong to themselves and to others. And it doesn't affect anyone else. And it doesn't hurt. That, the Bible says, is someone that does not love their kids. When it, becomes, when, it comes to becoming a, when it comes to being a husband, how does this play out as being a husband or a wife? How many times do I put demands or requests or expectations for someone to save me like my wife, right? To make me who I am, to give me what I need. How many times do we put them at this place of where they have to perform? Or whatever they did was so bad that they cannot be forgiven for. Look at the crosses and see what do you see? These crosses are not anybody's crosses, they're your cross, they're my cross. They're all of our cross today. They're the whole world's cross. And all of us deserve to be on that cross. But yet God is merciful and he is graceful and he is forgiving. What about our singleness? Living in a single life. This life that is for God. To love God and to love others. We too can go astray. We too can live a life where we suppress the truth. We too can get caught up in what we want and live our schedules the way we want and do what we want. We can get into this place of, of not feeling that we have purpose. But the most effective and the most purposeful people in the Bible were single. Jesus was single. And when we look at this cross, these crosses, we can see that there is acceptance, that there is forgiveness, that there's a glory to live for that's much more beautiful than what this world has to offer, more better than man's praise, more better than any accomplishment. 
more better than any kind of pleasure that would want to make us feel good. In our singleness, we see this cross that even if we did nothing, God still would do something for us. That he would die for us, that he would take us, that he would use us just as we are. It would make me as a single want to live all of my life for Jesus because there's nothing but his glory which is all sufficient that is most satisfying and there's really no risk involved because he paid it all you can live all for Jesus you don't have a distraction of a husband or a wife how about our squads when it comes to discipleship how important was it was that day for Jesus to show up on the cross for that thief how important was it for him to see and hear and recognize the gospel when it comes to our squads and discipleship that's what it's about is that we're not coming together because the church tells us to or because it's the right thing or because that's what Christians do no, we are actually displaying the gospel to somebody and speaking the gospel to somebody by showing up and by connecting and by being together. Because guess what? You're going to walk in with the thief that's nailed to his cross. And you're going to speak the gospel to them. And that day they might have been the day that they said, I'm giving up on God today. I'm giving up on life today. I'm giving up on my marriage. I'm giving up on working. I'm giving up on trying to save. I'm giving up on, on, on living for God. I'm giving up. I'm tired of it. This, this is too heavy. These, these nails in my wrists and my feet, they seem like they cannot be removed. I'm done. God won't be able to forgive me. You don't know what I've done. I'm condemned. I'm going to die. But you show up and you speak to them the gospel. And the gospel gives them hope one more day. And guess who that is? It's you. It's either you're going to be the one walking in or it's going to be them. And when you gather together in your squads, you're gathering together to speak that gospel one more time. Because the gospel is like this water that when we drink of it, we need more and more and more and more just to get through it because we're sheep that go astray. It's like we have a hole in our bucket and it just leaks out, leaks out over and over again. And what's against us when it comes to us speaking the gospel is all the forces of hell and all the darkness of this world and all this flesh and all of its desires preaching three of them against one message, the gospel. The gospel is more powerful. The gospel is more effective. The gospel can be depended on. But God has called us to speak the gospel. In the word it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, especially as you see the day approaching. Why does it say that? It's because we need to hear it over and over again. When it comes to evangelism and our squads 
As you gather, as, you, as you're together, as you're growing in Christ, it's going to give you confidence to go out and tell people about Jesus. But it's also when you're gathering you're together and you're dedicated, it means something to you. The people in your life, your work, your family, your friends, the place you go get coffee, they see it. They realize it. It affects you. It affects how you interact with others. And they just know it because it's important to you. It means something to you. Your church, your brothers and sisters in Christ. How does that affect evangelism? Well, one, it's being a light just all by itself. But two, we have men, we have women, we have this world that are carrying their crosses around and they're being nailed to their cross over and over again. And I don't know about you, but to me it's so important. The more I think about this, that they may not live another day, that they may never have another opportunity to hear the gospel, that they may too be the thief on the cross, whichever one left or right. How important is us speaking the gospel? And I'm not talking about yelling at somebody or putting them down or making yourself look good because people want to see it before they hear it. See, we speak the gospel with our life, with this posture of saying, I was a thief on the cross and I, and I railed at Jesus. I basically threw him a finger And then he changed me. And they can see that you don't have this special angle or, 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 or part on God where, where you're this good person and you've earned his favor and, and, and you're a Christian because you're a good guy and, and somehow you came into the knowledge of God because something you did that was good. No, that you're this thief. That's what the gospel does. It makes you the worst of them. All the good is Jesus. All the bad is us. That's what, you start living your life in this humility that doesn't come from you. It comes from just knowing and recognizing what God's done for you. And they can see it. Because even when they want to give you praise, you don't receive it. When they say, you're a good person, I'm not good. The rich young ruler told Jesus, you're a good person. Yay, good, good teacher. He's like, who said I am good? Only my Father in heaven is good. That's the gospel. And then when you tell them, you come from this posture of, hey, man, I want to say, I need Jesus so much in my life. I've messed up here and here. It makes you vulnerable. It makes you open. It makes you come out to the light. Coming out to the light is not this perfect, clean, ironed, everything's fine, let me show you all the good stuff. No, coming to the light is saying, I'm the first to admit, here's where I go wrong, here's my tendency, here's what's, what, what I struggle with. That's, that's what it does when you, when you evangelize. I'm a sinner. And it also gives us the boldness to tell them they're a sinner too. That we're all sinners and we all need Jesus. What is it like when it comes to ministry? As we gather together in our squads and as we come together to build each other up and grow in, the ministry, and grow in Christ, we are to what? Minister, serve. Serve somebody. Because why? Our Savior served us on the cross. Because we get to, because we're so thankful 
to even call me a minister. Do you know that every believer is a minister of God? We serve people in our work. How does it apply to our work? That's our ministry. Being a pastor and ordained to be a pastor is no more different than being ordained to be a teacher, to be a mechanic, to be a hostess, to be a salesperson. Right? To be a telemarketer, to work for the IRS. That is God's way of ministering to all of us some type of service. There's no different. And that's our ministry. That's our service. What about when it comes to worship? The gratefulness that comes from a heart of recognizing we belong on the cross, but we get to worship our God. We got one more day. Somebody say one more day. We have one more day. We have one more day that we're not on a cross, nailed and waking up in eternity, but we have one more day on this earth to worship the living God. These men will never know what that's like. Never. As we gather together, we're worshiping Jesus. And what about fellowship? Fellowship. We come together, right? We're coming together on this even playing field at the foot of the cross, the foot of a bloody, a bloody cross where our Savior died for us, where it marks my name and your name. But those crosses are empty. But it's a reminder of where we are and where we could be. It reminds us of a grace that cleanses us from all sins. So therefore we are graceful in our fellowship. When we break the bread and when we drink the, the, the juice, the wine, and we proclaim the gospel again, we're proclaiming that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. I don't know where you're at today exactly. Uh, I'm not sure if maybe, you know, you've lived this life where you've just hardened your heart and you've gone towards sin and you don't care if you sin anymore and you just do what you do and you live your life the best that you can live it and you've just suppressed the truth. I want you to know that that could be the very evidence of God allowing his wrath to allow you to do that today. And I want you to know that God loves you so much that he's able to tell you that right now. You, it, it would be the same thing as my son or my daughter running straight for the freeway straight for the freeway with every sin that they're doing, and I do nothing and I say nothing, God is rich in mercy and grace that he's telling you today that he wants to speak to you, that he wants to change your life, that he wants to come into your heart, and would you let him? 
Would you allow him to give you his spirit, his heart, his, uh, a new heart, his spirit to cause you to want to live for him? If maybe for this first time you're beginning to feel bad for your sins, that's the evidence of God in your life saying, I'm having mercy on you. Do not suppress that. I'm not talking shame. I'm talking what's natural when it comes to sinning. It hurts. It's supposed to hurt. Maybe you're someone that has been living for Jesus, but you carry this guilt. You carry this shame. You carry this load of this life of having to perform. You're always trying to make it happen. You're always trying to fix things. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man, no one may boast. Would you come to Jesus? Would you come to the third cross? The cross in the middle. Would you come to that cross today? And stop trying to make it happen. As the musicians come up, the worship team, would you come to that cross? Would you receive the gift of God today? See, how I know that it wasn't, uh, that it's true that the thief that went with Jesus was given a gift it's because he never was able to do anything for it. And that's what a gift is for. Now I know in our families, like, you better, better act right if you're going to get that, you know, and you better, you know, don't mess it up, and, you know, you, uh, you should appreciate what I did for this, you know. No. He said, it is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. I want to invite you to receive this gift, whether you've had your heart hardened against God or whether you've been living for him or whether you just started to remain in this gift and this love that God has for you. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not results of works so that no one may boast. Would you come to the third cross? Would you come to Jesus today? This is hard because we want something to do with it. We just want some way, somehow to be cute, to figure it out, to understand it, to make it happen, to pay back, right? It's hard for us just to rest and to relax and to float in God's love and God's grace. It would not be grace, it would not be a gift if it wasn't free today. It's yours for the taking. In your own words, in your own heart, whether you've never accepted Jesus or whether you have already, would you receive that free gift? Would you come to the cross in the middle? Three crosses in the gospel. God bless you, church.